Welcome to the Kids Sleep Health Podcast, brought to you by Full Face Orthodontics. This podcast is presented by Dr. Derek Mahoney, an orthodontist who has lectured in over 120 countries about early intervention orthodontics, something that has a profound impact on sleep health. Dr. Mahoney says his passion is helping young people achieve a better life through better sleep. In this podcast, he will be speaking to the world's leading medical minds about all things kids' sleep health. So tune in, because the secret to kids' sleep might be right under their nose. So um, welcome back uh, to Kids Sleep Podcast, um, and I have great pleasure today in uh, introducing my good friend and uh, colleague for many years, um, Dr. Jim Papadopoulos. Now, for those of you who are in Sydney and do with kids sleep, uh, he's a household name. For many of you who may be um, out of sight of Sydney or new to the field, I'll just uh, go through his fairly extensive CV. Um, uh, Jim is one of Australia's leading sleep medicine physicians and is widely known for his uh, work with sleep studies in children, in particular children with uh, ADHD and uh, special needs. Um, I work a lot with Jim with kids who have orthodontic problems, um, you know, the classic narrow palates and retinatic mandibles, and uh, he helps me to uh, uh, get them onto CPAP initially, which he'll talk about, and, and then we work together as a team to try and see how we can improve those kids' quality of life. Um, he works a lot with uh, Ruben Jackson, who I'm pleased to say will be on future podcasts, um, and Jim's one of the first sleep physicians that I think looks at things a bit more holistically than just the numbers, um, and we'll talk about numbers. He looks at things such as um, GI issues, which is a very common problem in kids. Um, so Jim was admitted uh, to the FRACP in general paediatrics in 2002, which means he's actually, before his sleep studies, a, um, a, a paediatrician. Um, in 2003, he became the first prospectively accredited level two paediatric sleep physician in Australasia. And that's the highest possible level you can attain. Um, since that time, he established uh, the paediatric sleep unit at St. George Private Hospital, um, which is where certainly I think we do most of our studies, Jim. Um, this continues to be the only private hospital paediatric sleep unit in New South Wales to offer ASA NATA accredited paediatric sleep laboratory services. And that includes um, uh, the uh, fitting of uh, CPAP. Um, and um, I think, uh, for my recollection at least, um, you got um, uh, accreditation from the same group uh, as um, for your CPAP service, which is a, a real honour. Um, and I think that makes certainly your sleep lab one of the most unique paediatric sleep laboratories uh, in Sydney. Um, Dr. Papadopoulos uh, also established Australia's first multidisciplinary sleep clinic for developmentally delayed children, uh, the adolescent sleep unit at St. George Hospital, and the first paediatric sleep clinic within the uh, Department of Orthodontics at uh, Sydney Dental Hospital. Uh, he's a co-joint lecturer at the University of New South Wales and uh, the University of Sydney, uh, and he directs the paediatric sleep disorders unit at St. George Private Hospital and is a staff specialist um, sleep pediatrician at the St. George Public Hospital. So, Jim, that was just an abbreviated CV. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, so thank you so much for um, giving up your time to uh, help uh, basically uh, kids, which I know you're passionate about, and also maybe answer some of the questions that um, 
uh, uh, parents want to ask about their kids' uh, sleep. Can I just start by um, asking you, you know, and I'm seeing this a lot in my um, clinical practice, more and more kids who present for whatever reason have sleep disorder problems. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so, Derek. Um, first of all, thanks for asking me to talk. And, and it's for that reason. Like you recognising this as an issue that makes you um, uh, different and differentiates you as well from, from other people in your profession. Um, and, and I appreciate that um, you, you place such a high value on sleep disorders in children because, you know, um, we know that it, it affects a lot of kids. And, in fact, so if you take into account, if, you, if you're just looking at kids who don't have any other sort of special needs, it's around 30% of the population which have got a sleep disorder. But if you include the special needs group, around about 60% of children with special needs will have a sleep disorder. And in, in autism, it goes up to as high as 80%. Wow. All right. And, and um, they're the kids who um, really, all, if you think about it, need the most help because sleep disorders in any child will take 10 points off your IQ, for example. Um, it will make you more irritable, more anxious. Um, it'll make it harder for you to learn things and remember things. I guess um, that's a, such an important uh, age of cognitive development, isn't it? Uh, for these yeah, things? your childhood is the bit, the bit of your life where you learn how to be an adult, you know, and if you miss out on a big chunk of it because you're half asleep, um, you can imagine that you can do a lot of good by recognising those kids who are half asleep while they're awake and, and sorting that out for them. And, you know, 10 points extra IQ at any level is 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 important, but um, especially for those kids who are struggling, um, uh, you know, not just cognitively, but emotionally. So you might have a kid who's got, you know, he's top of the class, but is struggling because they're anxious or they're irritable and, um, and their quality of life is poor. And then it's not just about the child themselves. Obviously, a child is part of a family and it affects the other family members, siblings, parents, um, carers. Um, people around them are affected by this. And, and how much does society miss out on when that child becomes an adult who didn't reach their full potential? You know, it's so, it's, it's a, <laughs> I, I could be over, I, I, don't, I don't think I'm overstating it. I, I really believe what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and, and it's one of the reasons I went from general pediatrics and sort of funneled into sleep medicine because back then that's where I saw the, the most or the least uh, people were doing it the least, if, yeah. if that makes sense. People well, were choosing um, sleep medicine, even for adults, is a relatively new um, a field in, in in medicine. And and then when you add the the, the kids on there, but um, can, can I just ask you, yeah. um, you know, from a parent's perspective, what yeah. did they look for uh, as far as uh, signs and symptoms of, of sleep difficulties in their kids? Yeah. Well, um, everyone knows about snoring now. Okay, so that's pretty much uh, front and centre in not just parents' minds but uh, educators' minds and doctors' minds and ENT surgeons' minds and dentists' minds. Everyone knows about snoring. But um, snoring, yes, is an issue. Snoring affects about, you know, 10% of children um, and one-third of them, so between sort of 1% and 3% of those children who snore are going to have sleep apnea. But if, remember when I said to you that 30% of children have got sleep problems, you can sort of see that snoring is about a third of it. 
Yeah. Um, what's the other two thirds? And the the way sleep disorders can present, um, usually the people who seek help for the sleep disorder from a sleep specialist are the parents whose child is disturbing their sleep. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So yeah. the child's having trouble falling asleep or trouble staying asleep, and it's disturbing the parental sleep. But there are a lot of kids, and fair enough, you know, that's their symptoms. So they might have uh, take ages to fall asleep. They might need a parent with them. They might fall asleep and then wake up and need a parent to help them fall back to sleep again. Or they might sleep until the second half of the night and then start waking up a lot and end up co-sleeping because it's just too hard to take your kid back to their bed when it's 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, and those parents seek help early. But the kids that fall through the cracks are the ones who fall asleep easily, stay asleep, and then wake up the next day uh, unrefreshed. Um, and the, the unfortunate thing, or the unfortunate thing is that a lot of these kids who wake unrefreshed are actually hyperactive when they wake up. So they look like they're full of energy. I hear that a lot. Yeah. My child can't have a sleep problem because they wake up full of energy and they run around and they don't yeah. stop. Yeah. But if you, you know, if you think about it, hyperactivity is the main symptom of sleep deprivation, not getting slow not slowing down and feeling tired or complaining that you're tired or acting. Um, adults are like that, but children are not little adults. Children are a different animal, really. They become hyperactive and only 30% of them will become slow and tired um, because of their sleep disorder. Yeah. And that's, I think, a good point because some adults that I know um, come to me because of daytime somnolence uh, and, you know, we put it down to uh, their quality of sleep. But then they say, well, but my kid's uh, not tired. In fact, he's full of energy. So I think mm. um, uh, things like um, uh, sleep apnea uh, affect children differently in, the, in, their, in their signs, at least, compared to, uh, to adults. I think that's a really important point. Uh, yeah, Karen. and it's not, it's not, uh, it doesn't matter what's destroying your sleep. It could be that you're just, just not getting enough hours of sleep. You're going to react the same the next day. You're going to be inattentive, irritable, anxious. And anxiety in children can show up as clinginess. Yeah. Uh, it can show up as being, you know, a pedantic and sort of, um, what do you call it, perfectionist type personality can be being a bit over anxious. You know, there can be subtle symptoms. Um, the, other, the other things, of course, that, um, that, will, that will cause someone to seek help or worry uh, that their child might have a sleep disorder is if they have excessive like teeth grinding when they sleep mm -hmm. or lots of nightmares or lots of night terrors or lots of sleepwalking. Um, sleep talking a lot, um, those sorts of disturbances in the middle of the night can also be a, a, a sign that you've got a sleep disorder. And then there's, um, um, you know, the kids who, there's a, there's a thing called restless leg syndrome, which if you've, if, you've, if you've ever had it, you know that it feels, it's very difficult to describe, but kids might describe feeling like their legs are fidgety, um, that they might be uncomfortable and need to keep moving their legs when they're asleep and they, and they complain about it. Um, if they complain about it, it's called restless leg syndrome. If they don't complain about it, but they've still got it and it shows up on their sleep study, it's called periodic limb movement disorder. Okay. And both of those things um, at night uh, are linked, uh, sort of associated with a poor sleep and during the day are associated with ADD symptoms, yeah. inattention, irritability, anxiety. And, um, and, uh, and, one, and, and the pathophysiology, uh, what's, in other words, what's going on in your brain when you've got ADD is very, it, it's, it's um, something which also happens to you if you don't sleep properly, which is a lack of dopamine. 
Uh, dopamine is the neurotransmitter which helps you with your concentration. Helps you. It runs your frontal lobes, which are which is the part of your brain which is responsible for for planning and for um, controlling your emotions and keeping a lid on your emotions. Yeah. Um, and when you don't have enough dopamine, you lose that control of your emotions. Uh, you lose that ability to focus and concentrate and to plan your, your moves step by step. So you go sort of go all over the place. You lose your way. Um, everyone knows about their kid who wakes up and it takes them 10 years to get ready because they go start to put their shoes on and they get one shoe on and they forget what they're doing. Then they go and brush their teeth and they get, squeeze the toothpaste on their toothbrush, but don't finish that. And, and then all of a sudden it's time to leave the house and they're just not ready. And then the teachers, if they're school age, will complain that, you know, they seem to be daydreaming, not focusing, um, et cetera, not interested, not, not, not learning as they should, um, having trouble with their literacy. Um, and, and these are other signs that, that can be there uh, that your child might have a sleep disorder. Can I, can I then just broach the subject, which I know is your passion, um, what, what is the role of sleep studies in, in kids in general, but particularly in the kids uh, with the symptoms that you're describing? Yeah. Look, Derek, um, you know, in dentistry, you, you, you probably wouldn't nowadays even think about drilling into someone's tooth unless you've done an X-ray first, right? Yeah. And a cardiologist is not going to do anything um, to your heart without having, you know, done an ECG or, and a neuro, neuro, neurologist or neurosurgeon is not going to operate on your brain unless they get an MRI scan. So a, a sleep study is a way of gathering information about what's going on with the sleep so that you can then um, more effectively intervene by knowing what you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And it's the, the problem is that um, there are lots of uh, physical issues with sleep which mimic each other. So obstructive sleep apnea and allergy and just having big adenoids and um, gastrointestinal reflux, which is where acid comes up out of your stomach and into your, your food pipe, all those, all those things tend to have very similar patterns of presentation and they end up the same way with a sleep disturbance. So during the day, you can't tell just because the kid's got ADD symptoms and they snore, that doesn't necessarily mean that they've got obstructive sleep apnea. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I already told you that if you've got snoring and sleep difficulties, that's like 10% of children, only one, only one third of them will, are going to end up with sleep apnea. Two thirds of them won't if you do a sleep study on them. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, and the, um, the other cruel thing really is that um, both obstructive sleep apnea and reflux uh, cause pauses in your breathing uh, or what sound like pauses or apneas and they can make you sound like you're gasping or choking as well while you're asleep and so the observation of snoring plus apnea does not equal obstructive sleep apnea it equals a problem which needs to be investigated with a sleep study mm-hmm. and that's been the position of of um you know since 2011 that where you we suspect obstructive sleep apnea and sleep ap- sleep studies are available a sleep study is indicated, full stop. It's not optional. Yeah. Um, it's kind of optional where sleep studies are not available. And being not available can mean you're in a country which doesn't have sleep studies, or it could mean it's going to take you forever to get a sleep study done. Right. Um, and, um, and then there are ways and means that, that, uh, where there are long waiting lists for sleep studies to try and screen children and try and work out which ones might have 
more severe problems um, and try and prioritise them and try and get them into sleep studies sooner rather than later. And that's a real issue for, for um, many children in Sydney and everywhere, unfortunately, because the public hospital system is, is geared up really to, to deal with, I think, it deals very well with acute and life-threatening issues very effectively, very quickly, um, but with more elective things in inverted commas, there are long waiting lists. And, uh, and, and so there, I guess, there's, you could make argue that perhaps sleep studies aren't available yeah. for people who can't get them through the private system. Um, and that's why, like with me, I, you know, I, I try and make sure that no one misses out just because, because they're not insured. Yeah. Um, and there are ways and means around that, but I can't, I can't basically <laughs> fit everyone into the St. Yeah. George private lab. Yeah. We, and, and, and there are, there are things that I can do at my discretion, but um, it really is a it really is a dilemma that we face uh, as sleep physicians for children because we know hundred percent we know that sleep studies should be done yeah. if you can get them and if you do it it's gold standard it's the best way um, and it's very hard to advise someone not to do it um, really um, you got to I, I feel like you need to inform people and say you know this is the best way and these are your options and this is what we can do. We do what we can, um, and the reason that the reason that it's important is not just because you want to diagnose obstructive sleep apnea um, as opposed to reflux, for example. Although that's really important because you don't want to take a kid's tonsils out who's just got reflux. Yeah. You don't want to give the kid who's snoring got sleep apnea reflux medications. They there's a big deal there, you know, and it's important. And the the sooner you can diagnose and treat these kids, the more IQ points you save, the better it is for them. Yeah. So you want an answer and you want it quick. You don't want to stuff around by saying, oh, let me try this first and then try that six months later if it doesn't work. No. no um, I've been to your unit and I see how well run it is, but I think what many parents don't understand, they can actually come along, at least one of them, and sleep yeah. next to their kid. Can you well, yeah, touch on yeah, that? of course. We yeah. never do a sleep study without a parent present. And, and we do sleep studies in kids down to, you know, zero age if we have to, and, and really the most challenging ones are the kids who are around about two years old uh, or the ones who've got autism and stuff like that, but we still do them and we know how to do them and we've developed special sort of skills in dealing with kids who've got special needs because of my special interests yeah. in children with disabilities, right? So we can get kids who won't even have haircuts to do sleep studies and it's not, that, it's not as bad as everyone thinks. There's no sedation involved. It's just one night. Um, the staff know what they're doing and kids and parents are prepared for what they're going to go through. And you mentioned CPAP as one of the things that, that makes St George Private Hospital stand out. Um, uh, and that's because we are able, we actually get really good results with CPAP. We get lots of kids onto CPAP that, um, that, that otherwise wouldn't get onto CPAP. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, yeah. because of, I've dealt with a lot of kids with Down syndrome, with orthodontic issues and all the rest of it, we just know how to do CPAP, and that's and that was recognised by NADA. And that's the see, Derek. You know, there are other sleep labs in Sydney that are accredited by NADA and the ASA for diagnostic sleep studies. But St George Private is the only one that's got both accreditations for diagnostic and CPAP use. If you want to get CPAP uh, for your child, uh, otherwise anywhere in Sydney, you'd have to go to you have to go to the kids' hospitals. Yeah. Or to St George Private. That's it. None of the other private sleep labs can. Yeah. Are accredited to do it anyway. 
Yeah. Now, I know that's important for me as an orthodontist because, you know, when I've got those kids uh, that I'm putting expanders in, uh, it actually worsens their sleep initially, I find. That's and right. They it really, does. That's when they really do need the support of the CPAP. And then yeah. after that, sure, we can work with other factors. But I think sometimes, uh, unfortunately, in my profession, uh, and even talking to some parents, it seems to be like CPAP's a dirty word and something that, yeah. you know, you want to stay away from. But when it comes Oh, yeah. To- I, yeah. I want to stay away from it too. Don't get me wrong. Um, the, first, the first treatment is adenotonsillectomy. Yeah. Right, where, the, where there's significant adenotonsillar tissue, it's got to come out first. Otherwise, even CPAP doesn't work. Yeah. Right. So I don't want people to get the idea that I just put all the kids on CPAP and don't send it to the ENT. So no, no, no. They go to ENT, every child who has sleep apnea needs to get an upper airway assessment with an ENT surgeon. Right. And if there's something to operate on, they get it operated on. Um, unfortunately, uh, it's, it's known that it's not 100% curative. And in fact, when they figured out when they looked at it much closer and seen what is the cure rate for children who've got obstructive sleep apnea, they figured out that, yes, it's around 90% for kids who've got mild sleep apnea, but for the moderate and the severe or kids with syndromes or with, and, or with orthodontic issues and stuff like that, their cure rate drops to around 25% after adenotonsillectomy. Yeah. Even though their cure rate for snoring, like the snoring component of their symptoms will get better 100% of the time, snoring gets better after having your tonsils and adenoids out, whether you're mild, moderate or severe. But actually being cured of your obstructive sleep apnea in the middle of the night where you're blocking your breathing happens 25% of the time. Yeah, that's kind so of, a lot of Yeah, a lot of parents uh, think that their kids are cured and so do their doctors because they don't snore as much anymore or they don't snore at all anymore, in inverted commas. But the I number of kids... I remember uh, you had a really good point in one of your lectures to my dental study group where you said, look, um, uh, if someone uh, says that their kid is now sleeping well just because they've stopped snoring but you haven't measured anything else, that's a bit like saying, all right, well, you can sleep well at night because I've, I've taken away your fire alarm. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you won't be woken up by any noise, but what's yeah. the danger? The danger, you know, or, or I sometimes say, uh, thunder and lightning. You know, thunder is what you hear, but what's more dangerous? It's the lightning. It's so the think- lightning. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. Derek. And and that's why it was recommended as part of those that that recommendation 2011 that you should also do follow up sleep studies in kids with moderate to severe sleep apnea to start who start out like that. Yeah. Then you you need to do a follow up sleep study at least eight to ten weeks later, and I do it twelve weeks later to make sure all the swelling's gone. Yeah. And to pick up any residual sleep apnea that's there because. It's important. It needs to get treated. If you treat it, then they can outgrow it. If you miss it and you don't treat that residual sleep apnea, even though the kid's much better, it continues to be a problem and it gets worse and worse. You're the one who taught me and and, I, and other people have taught me, like everyone knows that if you continue to have obstructive sleep apnea, which is untreated, you're going to, your orthodontic development is going to be unhelpful for your airway. Yeah, you're going to end up with a narrower and narrower airway. And then the kids come back when they're seven, eight, nine after they had their tonsils out when they were two or three and weren't cured. Yeah. Uh, and they end up in the orthodontic chairs, okay, with their high narrow palates, their overjets, their, and so on and so forth, right? So then if you've got a kid who still has sleep apnea after they've had their tonsils and adenoids out and they're, and they're under orthodontic age group, they need to be supported. They'll be supported with a nose spray if their sleep apnea is mild, if it's moderate or worse and it's not going to respond to a nose spray. They get supported with CPAP until they're old enough to, to get their orthodontic work done. 
Yeah. And then through their orthodontic work, because the, the plates and the expanders that, you, that, that are put in necessarily take up room inside your mouth, that's why we think when we did our studies at the dental hospital, we found that the, their sleep apnea got worse when, when the plates were in. And there's pressure need, uh, if they were on CPAP, would go up yeah. um, during, the, during the orthodontic treatment. But at the end of orthodontic treatment, if you support them with their CPAP, uh, at the end of it, when you take out the, the plates, you stop the CPAP, and all of these kids at that point are cured, right? And if they haven't been cured, their pressure need has gone down. Yeah. And then you just you just plug on because it's just one of those things. Some people like us, like we need glasses, right? Yeah. <laughs> Some people need CPAP, but yeah. it's not a dirty word. It's just without my glasses, I wouldn't be able to drive. I wouldn't be able to do anything, okay? And so why should we be afraid of CPAP when it doesn't, it, uh, I think a lot of adults are afraid of CPAP for their children because they themselves have got sleep apnea mm-hmm. and they've tried wearing CPAP and it hasn't been fitted properly or it hasn't had the right settings or they've just got very, they're very sensitive. And, and as an adult, they can say, I'll oh, stuff this, I don't want it. Yeah. But a child is, a di- is different. A child can say, I'll oh, stuff this, I don't want it. And the parent goes, no, you're going to wear it. And they will. And then they eventually go, oh, well, I wear it and it's fine. And they wear it all night if you get the right pressure the right mask and do all of the things that we need to do to get them to be comfortable with it. The kids wear CPAP better than adults for sure. hundred mm-hmm. percent. It's true. Um, so I'm not afraid of CPAP at all. Um, I know a lot of parents are, but when they see, <laughs> I guess when they find out that, you know, I used CPAP on my own son when he was, um, it, when he was seven years old and he wore it from seven to nine and then he outgrew his sleep apnea before he got, to the orthodontic chairs because his his palate issue just resolved. Yeah. It just resolved on CPAP. Kids can outgrow their orthodontic issue if you treat them with CPAP too. You know, we've seen you, that. You, we? um, working with natural growth in that regard. You're working with natural growth while you're waiting for them to be old enough to get the RMEs put in because because you're waiting for their teeth to come down and all the rest of it. Anyway, you guys are in charge of that. I never I, I never tell my patients that they're going to need an RME or not, or what age they need to start it or finish it or whatever. I go, that's up to your orthodontist. Uh, I don't know that stuff. Just like they're not going to try and teach me about CPAP. I'm not going to try and interfere with whatever they think is best for your particular case. Jim, yeah. Can I ask, um, a lot of the parents ask me this question. What are some basic things that um, uh, they can do to help their children sleep better? Yeah. All right. So um, first of all, I think, with everything, kids thrive when there's a routine and there are limits, okay? Um, but it's not that hard to get a good routine going for sleep. And it's, you can, if you look it up and you Google sleep hygiene rules for kids, if you just Google that, you're going to come up with a list and different lists have got different things in them. But the basics are regular sleep and wake time. Avoid screens within, a lot of people say within an hour of bedtime, um, but I found that half an hour is plenty. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, bed needs to be for sleeping only. So no reading in bed, no, you know, cuddling up in bed, no playing on your computer in bed, no studying in bed. Bed's for sleeping only. So when you get in the bed and your head hits, hits the pillow, your body knows it's time to sleep, not time to play. Um, the room needs to be comfortable. It needs to be the right temperature, the light. A dim night light is helpful, just enough so that the child doesn't feel scared in the middle of the night and can is confident enough to be able to go to the toilet, for example, or find the door. And if they need to go to their parents, don't lock your kids in the room. Like they'll get scared of that because they can't access you if they need help. 
So yeah. leave you, you know, there's no need to, to sort of be brutal about their sleep routines. And if a child's coming to you in the middle of the night, it's not because they're naughty usually, it's because they're, they've got a sleep disorder, yeah. a physical problem with their sleep, especially if it's in the second half of the night. Anyway, I digress. What, the other what, thing, what's, what you mentioned temperature, what would be the ideal room temperature for sleep? Well, they reckon around 19 degrees, but it's a bit yeah. cold for me. Like a kid right. probably 20, you know. Yeah. Um, but they, they, there have been studies done which show that the quality of your sleep is, is best when it's around 19 degrees, and that's in adults. But, we, you know, a child may be – whatever's comfortable for you. They make it too cold or too hot. They make it too bright. They make it too noisy. Um, background, background sounds are interesting because you, you can get white noise generators, pink noise generators. You can have music on continuous replay. I don't mind. Whatever you decide to do, do it, but don't put the radio on. The radio gets louder and softer and it changes through the night. And the main thing you're trying to achieve in a bedroom is a constant sort of situation so that when someone's asleep, whatever's happening as they're falling asleep is going to be the same right. when they finish that sleep cycle. And in children, it could be, you know, 90 minutes or so on average. Younger you are, it might be 60 minutes and older it reaches about two hours when you're an adult. When you come to the end of that sleep cycle, you come subconsciously awake and you check out your surroundings. And if nothing's changed, you don't come fully awake. You just roll out. You just go back to sleep again. Mm-hmm. If something's changed, if the music that was on at the beginning of the night isn't there, if the parent lying next to you when you're falling asleep isn't there, if your dummy's fallen out and you haven't found it and, and you wake you wake up because it's, it can signal danger. We've evolved to notice changes in our environment when we sleep um, and come uh, uh, become alert and activated um, and then it makes it harder for you to fall asleep again if that's changed so the, a, con, a consistent sleep is really important um, you when you waking yeah, sorry you, you mentioned um you know the kids being able to get to their parents etc um what question that again from, from my perspective is when is a child too old to, to sleep with their parents yeah, it's when when neither of them want it anymore. <laughs> oh, like okay, <laughs> no, uh, yeah, right. No, no, the studies have shown that it's it's not about how old you are; it's more about how young you are. Right. So it, it can be harmful if you're too young to co sleep. What I mean by that that there's a known increased risk of SIDS in infants who are co sleeping with their parents. So you don't want to do it below a year of age. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, after a year of age, eighteen months or so. If you feel like I know a lot of families now, like they get split up or single parent or there's issues that happen, someone's sick or whatever, and and they just feel comfort from each other sleeping together in the bed, and it's not not an issue. Both both the parent and the child fall asleep easily, stay asleep, wake refreshed, have no trouble with concentration, behaviour or learning during the day. Who cares, right? When you're ready, um, you can go through a a very brief and very easy behavioural program to win yourselves off each other and that's you don't need a pediatric sleep specialist to do that you can just read a book or and if you do have a problem doing that uh, and you can't seem to get uh, an independent sleep then you might have a physical problem with your sleep causing issues and you should look into it fair enough yeah so um, the other thing I want to say was you need a regular wake time and bright light in the mornings helps your circadian rhythm helps your body clock know this is morning and therefore this is day and uh, X number of hours later, your melatonin will, will uh, uh, be secreted by your pineal gland, you know, and your brain is going to know it's time to fall asleep. If you don't get that bright light in the mornings, if, you know, 
if your teenager or if your child starts to wake up and not want you to draw the curtains and stay in the dark for another hour before the light um, hits their eyes, they're going to develop, it's going to be harder for them to fall asleep at the right time the next night. Um, so bright light in the mornings helps. And um, also it's, it's really interesting. There's been some more research recently through the US uh, where they found that actually meal times are very important for the circadian rhythm as well. Mm-hmm. What you, uh, what time you eat, um, how how heavy your meals are at different points. Um, but basically, for us, we need to just you know have regular meal times would be the best sort of simple way to help our kids. Regular meal times, not every now, not not different for different nights of the week, depending on whether you've got violin or whether you've got karate, you know, or tennis or gymnastics and um, try and make an effort to at least have dinner at the same time each night as a family, you know, yep. helps. And then a wind down period afterwards. A lot of people incorporate bathing time during that wind down period afterwards because baths can relax you and, and, uh, and, and help you sort of get ready for bed easier. You talk about the, uh, the intensity of the light. Uh, one thing I know that uh, a lot of dentists always say to uh, the parents, well, make sure your kid brushes their teeth before you go to bed. When I read uh, Kruger, you know, Essentials of Sleep Medicine, cover to cover yeah. during my studies, in actual fact, the last, the, the, normally the brightest light in the house is the bathroom light. And, right. you know, when, you, when you're about to get the kid ready to go to sleep, unless you make it this, you know, a wow factor, which is great in the morning. Yeah. Uh, and um, I know a couple of companies now uh, actually have special bulbs that change uh, uh, their intensity based That's on, really good uh, idea. On, on their sleep. So, so I always say to parents, look, your kids should brush their teeth after they eat. And, and uh, you know, not as part of the routine of just going to bed because you'd imagine this bright light in you for three, four minutes and then uh, right, right, it, it's, it's off to sleep. So I think uh, that yeah. rhythm is really, really important. And uh, it's, blue light that, it's blue light that's bad for suppressing your, like, so if you've, got the, if you've got a choice of putting different sort of warmth LEDs in your house, yep. choose the warm ones, not the cold ones, not the bright blue ones because they do yeah. interfere with your sleep more than the warm lights. Yeah. Um, and then can so I ask a couple other things. No, there's yeah. one more, one or two other really important things. No heavy meals before bedtime, within two hours of bedtime. Okay. Um, and milk, drinking milk at night doesn't help you sleep, makes it worse. Mm-hmm. So because it, it raises your body temperature and melatonin's function is to drop your body temperature as you're going off to sleep. And that's why cooler environments help you sleep better too. Um, and no heavy exercise within two hours of bedtime. A lot of these kids are finishing, you know, gymnastics at eight o'clock and then bedtime's eight thirty. It's not, it doesn't work. I know, I know gymnastics is important and I know sport is important and stuff, but have a real think about whether it's important enough for you to be wrecking sleep for, and see is there any other activity or you know option to do the training a little bit earlier or different time of the day if you can. Training in the morning is good, you know. That's when your cortisol levels are at their highest as well. It's when we're designed to, to train morning and around about four o'clock in the afternoon, sort of between four and five, our bodies are designed to train and to work hard, mm-hmm. um, not at sort of seven, eight, nine o'clock at night as much. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. Um, so, uh, look, thanks very much for all that information. And I'm sure uh, there'll be a million questions from parents, whereas, you know, we, we, uh, uh, we don't do these podcasts uh, uh, live because it's impossible to 
you know, get your schedule, my schedule, and your schedule together. But uh, yeah. uh, they really get a lot of uh, questions um, from parents after they listen to them. Can I ask? Um, uh, we should do a, a seminar for parents, mate. Sorry, that we should do a seminar for parents. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. Do I totally one of those and have a have a panel. Yeah, and have, have parents ask questions. Why not? You know, yeah. just no, at be, some point. Yeah, I think uh, we'll wait and see how many more of these. Um, uh, uh, you know, people start tuning into the podcast on a regular basis. We'll throw yeah. throw that out there. But if a parent wants to um, take their child to see you for you know just to talk about their sleep or maybe booking for a sleep study, uh, there's the uh, sort of thing. Can they come to you directly? Do they have to go through their GP? Can you explain how that system works for a parent to get to you, or basically how they can uh, find you? Yeah. Okay. So I think if you want to see me, just just ring. Um, the phone number's uh, 029553-1033 or send an email to info at sleepingchild.com.au. Regardless of where you're coming from, whether it's before you've seen another doctor or after you've seen a doctor or a dentist, we're not going to t- say, no, you need a referral before you can even speak to us. That's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. If, you got, if you got an inquiry, and then talk to uh, the receptionist that I have because... They're trained up to ask a few questions and screening questions and work out whether it's appropriate for you to see me or not. Um, because we don't want to book people in who don't really need me, that they need to see someone else instead. Yeah. Um, doesn't help anyone, really. So have a chat to those to the receptionists. Send, send off the emails. If the email or the, the questions you have are stuff that my secretaries, my receptionists sort of uncomfortable with or not sure about, they know that they can talk to me anytime they want and then they pass them on to me and then I can, you know, answer. And um, and sometimes I say it, it just takes a few seconds to type a quick email and fix a problem and that's not, a, not an issue. But other times I look at it and I go, well, hang on, this needs a consult. And then they'll call you back and they say, well, then you need to make an appointment. Um, to, to see me in consultation, you need a referral from a medical practitioner. Mm-hmm. Um a dental practitioner, unfortunately, can't refer directly to me. But if if you contact us um, from it, if your dentist sends you to us, and then we realise that actually you do need to see us, um, then you can go to your GP afterwards, confident that you need a referral because you've talked to us and we've said yes, you've been, we've screened you, and yes, you will benefit from a consult, okay, uh, or a or a sleep study or whatever we decide after talking to you about it it's not you know I don't, I don't want to I don't want my access I don't want access to me to be you know like you have to put your hand up before you can go to the toilet because you're in class the teacher's sort of in charge of you and whatever no we're all I, I like to treat parents as my colleagues to be honest yeah and by the end of the time they spend with me they know about they know as much of as I do about their child's sleep disorder as I do because I've got a, a thing about educating, or maybe I do, maybe I over-educate because I actually show everyone their sleep studies. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I actually spend time with each consult. No, yeah. you're not going until you've had a look at what I saw during the night on the video. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that you can understand why I'm so worried and why I'm saying to you, your, your kid needs their tonsils and adenoids out, or your kid doesn't need to worry, don't worry about the tonsils and the adenoids because, look, there weren't any obstructions or there weren't enough to worry about. But this is happening and this is this suggests this other sleep disorder or that disorder or whatever. And and I think that that helps parents be confident because 
if you tell someone that your, your child needs to wear a mask in the machine and you haven't shown them why, yeah, they're less likely to, to, to persevere when their kid's not wanting to do it, you know, whereas if you show someone the, 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 the scenes that I see at night of kids choking and, and having problems breathing. Well, I, I remember seeing um, uh, a few of the videos that you sent me quite kindly for patients I was referred to you. And, yeah. uh, and one thing I've noticed when you report on a sleep study versus other people, uh, um, you look at the whole night. Some people literally just pick one hour and it just could be doing that one hour. Oh, really? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Was, no, I, no, no, I, no. I've seen, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the the videos and it's it's really I mean what a wake up call for a parent when they actually almost see the kid choking you know uh, which yeah. they wouldn't they wouldn't do normally if the kid sleeps and they don't need to do down. much see that's the thing with kids right um, so for an adult to be, to have sleep apnea you need to have five instructions per hour on average but a child more than one per hour is abnormal okay? yeah yeah so if you get like nine hours of sleep and you're a kid that's nine obstructions in the night and then you're abnormal. They could all happen between 1 a.m. and 1.05 a.m. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and the rest of the night you're looking at them and, and they're not, not got it. Or they could happen, there's one at like 8.32 p.m. And then there's another one at 9.45 p.m. And then there's another one. You know what I'm saying, yeah. Derek? So Absolutely. because they're so sp- spread out, you're looking at it, you're probably going to look at them in a period where they're not. And and the other thing is this, the converse is true too. Say they, say they have five obstructions in the night, right? And they've slept for nine hours and you've sat there and you've recorded that. You could think that your child has obstructive sleep apnea when they don't. Yeah, yeah. Because normal children will choke like that up to once per hour. And that's why it's not a good screening tool to video your child snoring and choking once or twice or whatever through the night. Yeah. And then someone else saying, oh, that's enough evidence for me to do an operation. That, you know, the earliest, the earliest studies done looking at, at um, do we really need sleep studies in children or not? We're back in the 80s. And the early studies were done proved that you can't diagnose or exclude obstructive sleep apnea just by videos of, or, or parental report. Uh, or clinical signs, so the size of the tonsils don't count, whether they're big, small, or not there, you can still have sleep apnea. And you can't predict, not only can you, can't you predict whether sleep apnea is present or not by the clinical features, you, you definitely can't predict how severe it is. There are some clues where it might be more severe, such as if there's obesity present or if there's cerebral palsy present, present or other things, right, or you're under two years of age, you're more likely to be severe. But the number of children who are obese that I've done sleep studies on who snore and have no obstructive sleep apnea is phenomenal. Yeah. And yeah. you know this too, right? Because we've shared so many patients um, together. You know this. And Reuben Jackson needs to get involved. When the kids are snoring and, and have sleep difficulties and wake unrefreshed and they sleep deprived to the day just, just as if they had sleep apnea but don't, and it's all their gut issues destroying their sleep, Right. Yeah. And and that's why I'm so grateful for Ruben because he takes sleep so seriously. You know, he doesn't um he doesn't say, oh, it has to be proven by endoscopy before I'm going to do anything about it. And in fact, 95% of his patients don't have don't end up having endoscopies, just get treated, get fixed, and go away without needing an endoscopy. 
And that's a beautiful result because that's actually what's recommended internationally, that endoscopy is not the way to diagnose reflux in children. The therapeutic trial is. Yeah. And right? my... Yeah, 100%. Sorry. I know I'm still in... Uh, can, can I touch on one other point? I know... Um around the world, what's very popular is Bayer's questionnaire, just as a uh, tick the box whether my kid may need to see someone like yourself, Jim. Um, I remember watching, you're on TV a few years ago, uh, and I thought that was a really good thing for parents. You remember, what was the what was the program? And yeah, it was it? Um, Channel 7, and Channel it was a yeah. um, Sunday night program. Right. And um, it was about, um, yeah, obstructive sleep apnea in children and there was a few few babies there that we needed to put on CPAP and, and stuff. And I was, thought that was a really good... Uh, whoever, really good, wasn't it? Yeah. did that, uh, yeah. did their homework and things. So that's one resource. Kerri-Ann Kennelly, Kennelly was the um, interviewer. That's right, person. yeah. 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 Tell, yeah. tell me, is there something on your website that a, a parent can download as a checklist, like, you know... Uh, uh, how long does it take to my kid to get to sleep? Does my kid snore at night? You know, some sort of, uh, well, when they answer five out of the 10 questions and they probably have a sleep disorder, anything like that? So so now you've embarrassed me because I don't actually have a, a look, my web presence is very small. It's just okay. the hospital official sort of page at St. George Private Hospital where it's got my profile and yeah. and stuff. Um I don't actually have a, a proper web page because I don't know. But a lot of parents uh, seem to know me when they see me because of all of the other stuff that I do, like these podcasts and other talks that I've given or um, that Channel 7 program. They find them, they find it by Googling my name yep. and then yep. they look at what I've said about things. So that's one way of getting more information about what I've said about sleep disorders in children. There was a choice article I remember at one stage as well. Um, there's a lot of parents groups who who write up the stories that they've had uh, experiences with me. A lot of parents write them up. Um, so you know, the whole internet is my web page <laughs> in a sense. Just Google Google no. my name, Jim Dog Jim Papadopoulos, sleep, and see what comes up. And you know, why I don't feel like look. One day I'm going to have a web page when I'm not so busy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the other place, that if you want resources, is the Australasian Sleep Association, the Sleep Health Foundation. Yep. The children's hospitals have got great, um, you know, information sheets that people can access about different things. Um, if you're thinking about uh, CPAP, you can just Google CPAP and CPAP in children. You'll see the photos and the, the masks and stuff that the kids use. Um, or you can just ring us and, and say, you know, I'm after a bit more information about this and that. Um, I gave you the phone number and the email before. You can do, you can do that, and then um, if your child needs a consultation, then I'll see them. If they don't need a consultation, I won't see them because you know it's why should we waste each other's time there? Yeah, perfect, Jim. Thank you so much. Uh, I always learn a lot talking to you, and I, I can thank see you. the I can see the passion uh, in what you do. And thank you very much for looking after all those patients. You know. Uh, it took me years to write up that PhD and most of those uh, kids' sleep studies, whether they were before, you know, some throat, after ortho, they all came back uh, to you. And it's really good to, to see your reporting because it's so thorough. Uh, so thanks very much from an academic point of view and uh, uh, thanks for all you do for the young kids. Uh, so uh, I'm signing off now uh, uh, for Jim Papadopoulos. 
And um, uh, for those who want more information, we will um, post uh, his contact phone number and his email for those who missed. Thanks again, Jim. Appreciate it. Cheers, mate. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to the Kids Sleep Health Podcast brought to you by Full Face Orthodontics. For more information about Dr. Mahoney's work, visit fullfaceorthodontics.com.au or visit his social media pages listed in the show notes.